Sign up at LifeNews.com. This has been Life News Radio. 990 WDEO, Ypsilanti, Detroit, W300CO Dexter, and Ave Maria Radio Station, and on the net at AveMariaRadio.net. Crest in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. And a good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. Glad you're joining me for another hour here. We are going to be talking about some of the things that matter most. In this hour, we want to acquaint ourselves more deeply with... St. Paul, the Apostle. Uh, we have so much information in the book of Acts, in his letters, that uh, he's one of, the, one of the biblical figures that we can actually uh, groom a, a portrait of. I mean, he, he shows us a lot. He's very autobiographical in his writings. He tells us a lot about his interior life. It tells us a lot more about his history than, say, Peter does or John. And my guest is scholar Brent Petrie. He is author of Paul, a New Covenant Jew. Remember, Paul, before his radical conversion on the road to Damascus, was a strict follower of the Jewish faith. He was called himself a Pharisee of the Pharisees, so we know he was identified with a particular uh, theological party within uh, what they call Second Temple Judaism, or First Century Palestinian Judaism. How did he view his past after his encounter with Christ? How did he view his education under his famed teacher, Gamaliel? Well, Brent's going to go over many of those things with us. Uh, there is so much, even in the moment of St. Paul's encounter with Jesus, there is so much theology, you might say, in that moment that we're going to have the opportunity to watch Brandt lay this out. It's truly fascinating, and when it's over, you will know St. Paul much better than you've known him before. But before we get there, let's get to today's headlines. Hey, Sal. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Wednesday, March 8th. It's the Feast of St. John of God. Today's news brought to you by Charity Mobile, supporting pro-life and Catholic causes. CharityMobile.com. Pope Francis met today with two young Nigerian girls who survived horrendous violence at the hands of Boko Haram. Both girls saw family members murdered by the terrorists about five years ago. Their stories are detailed in the report, Nigeria, a Bleeding Wound which shares first-hand testimonies of Catholics who have survived torture, kidnappings, and massacre at the hands of the Nigerian terrorists. Afghanistan is now the most repressive country for women, that according to the United Nations, which made that declaration on International Women's Day. It comes after the Taliban swept into power once the U.S. left in 2021. 
A bill allowing Kentucky public school workers private religious expression on the job is moving to the House floor. A few of the religious expressions the bill would protect, if passed, include wearing religious clothing and artifacts, sponsoring a student religious club, or sharing religious material with other employees. The bill won't allow public school teachers and staff to coerce students into following their religious beliefs. The president will roll out his budget proposal Thursday in Philadelphia. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre claiming it will cut the deficit by nearly $3 trillion over 10 years. He'll also include raising the Medicare tax on those making more than $400,000 per year to extend the program for decades. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell stressing that policymakers haven't yet decided on the size of the interest rate increase expected later this month. We will continue to make our decisions meeting by meeting, taking into account the totality of the incoming data and their implications for the outlook for economic activity. While testifying before a House committee, Powell said the increase will depend on incoming data on jobs and inflation. From your Ave Maria Radio.net news desk, I'm Steve Clark. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. One of the greatest figures, not only in church history, but in world history, is Paul of Tarsus. St. Paul, uh, we forget oftentimes how important um, some of our uh, church heroes are. I often point out with St. Augustine, for instance, that not only was he an outstanding Catholic bishop, but he's also considered to be uh, the most prolific uh, writer of late antiquity. Uh, so if you were just writing, you know, not even trying to consider the church, you'd still look at St. Paul as this massive figure that had to be dealt with. Well, Paul of Tarsus is the same way, and I don't know if he's been given quite the attention he deserves by secular authorities, but certainly in the church, and in non-Catholic uh, circles, uh, St. Paul is huge. And I'm glad to say that we have before us a new study of uh, Paul. It's uh, called Paul, a New Covenant Jew, Rethinking Pauline Theology. And with me right now to talk about is Dr. Brant Petrie, Distinguished Research Professor of Sacred Scripture at the Augustine Institute. And he's the author of many books, including, like you said, most recently, Paul, a New Covenant Jew. Uh, but also Jesus and the Jewish Roots of Mary. He also co-authored with John Bergsman the Catholic Introduction to the Bible, the Old Testament, which we've discussed here. And uh, it's great to have you back with me. Thanks so much, Brent. Thanks for having me, Al. Good to be with you again. Let's go right to the title itself. Uh, yeah. Paul, a New Covenant Jew, Rethinking Pauline Theology. A lot of rethinking about Paul has gone on over the last generation, <laughs> right? Yeah, it's amazing, the explosion of books that have been articles that have been written in the last, I'd say, 30 or 40 years. Um, it's, it's actually impossible for one person to keep up. If you look at all the different topics being discussed right now in New Testament studies, Paul is in many ways, in the last two decades in particular, the hottest of all of them. It's just amazing how much work is being done on him. And why is that? I think that in part it's because um, in the 1970s there was a, a major book by E.P. Sanders called uh, Paul and Palestinian Judaism mm -hmm. that launched 
a critique of Paul that had been in place for really for centuries, especially in non-Catholic circles and Protestant circles. Yeah. Uh, a, a view of Paul that was very traditional, went back to in various forms, very uh, diverse forms to Luther and Calvin, but that saw Paul uh, in a sense in a, as in a polemical relationship with the Judaism of his day, mm-hmm. and that often characterizes characterized Paul's description of Judaism as a legalistic religion of works righteousness right. and 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 Paul's polemics against you know being justified by faith and not by works of the law as a polemic against um, basically the Jewish ideas of earning one's righteousness through performing good deeds and back in 1977 what Sanders argued and he was a uh, mainline Protestant, although not very uh, practicing, but rather secular in his outlook. Mm-hmm. What he argued was is that uh, that uh, much of Pauline interpretation in Protestant circles had gotten him wrong on that point, right. and that in fact Judaism was not a religion of works righteousness, but a religion of grace, in which a person gets into the old covenant through grace, but stays in through works. Right. And that's this this perspective of Sanders launched uh, a really a revolution in Pauline studies that eventually came to be associated with the term the new perspective on Paul. Right. Um, and, and that debate over the work of E.P. Sanders and the so-called new perspective has, has led to a really amazing time period in, in Pauline scholarship where everyone is rethinking everything from the ground up. Uh, and, and Michael Barber and John Kincaid, my co-authors, and I felt like we could bring a Catholic voice to that discussion of Paul's relationship with Judaism. That's what we're trying to do in this book. It would seem, just from the general outline you've given us, that the new perspective on Paul tends to favor a more Catholic approach to Paul. Uh, yeah, I, I would say that, although not in unqualified way. There, as we try to look at in the book, there are, there are important points of convergence yes. between uh, the work of E.B. Sanders and the new perspective, but there are also some differences. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the things we're trying to do is take some of the key insights of the new perspective. For example, uh, E.B. Sanders really emphasized the importance of, for Paul of participation in Christ, right? The idea that it's not just that I, as a believer, you know, accept Christ as my Savior and then am declared to be righteous through a kind of juridical forensic declaration, although that's true, but that also through baptism, I become a member of Christ's body. I actually participate in Christ, and then through the grace of the new covenant, a real change takes place in me, um, so that I move from being part of the old creation under Adam to the new creation in Christ. So there are some differences, um, for sure, but the basic insight of the new perspective, and of E.P. Sanders in particular, is that when Paul talks about justification by faith apart from works of the law, he's not arguing or polemicizing against good works that are done in right. Christ. Does right. that make sense? Yeah. What, he, what he's talking about there is the idea that you can get into Christ through works of the law, such as circumcision or other acts that might have brought you into the old covenant, but they are insufficiently for making you a member of Christ, for making you a participant in Christ, which is really the essence of salvation for Paul. The way we are justified is by dying with Christ and rising with him through faith and baptism. So that's, that's 
really one of the key insights of Sanders. When Sanders argued that Paul wasn't polemicizing against good works, it set off a firestorm of debate within, especially within non-Catholic circles, about how to interpret Paul, how to interpret works of law, and also how to interpret Paul's overall relationship with uh, Judaism, the Judaism of the day. Yeah, I imagine it's created a good deal of controversy among evangelical Protestant uh, circles. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely the case. There's been a really strong pushback against um, the work of E.B. Sanders and the work of, um, of various figures who followed him, such as James Dunn and N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright, yeah. Uh, and, yeah, N.T. Wright, I mean, he's probably the most prolific and, and well-read New Testament scholar writing today, and he's kind of one of the key figures in the so-called New Perspective. And one of the criticisms of the, of uh, especially the work of um, Wright and Sanders was uh, many evangelical Protestants pushed back and said, well, hold on a second. If you look at Paul carefully, there are passages in Paul's letters where when he uses the expression works, or he talks about justification not apart from works, he doesn't just seem to be talking about circumcision right. or you know uh, dietary laws, but actually any kind of work. And the classic example of this is in Romans chapter 4. You might recall when Paul's using Abraham as mm-hmm. an example of someone who was justified by faith and not by works. And in that passage is a really important line that many evangelical Protestant scholars have pointed to when Paul says in Romans 4, this is verse 4 uh, and 5, he says, To one who works, his wages are reckoned not as a gift, I'm sorry, not reckoned as a gift, but as his due. And to one who does not work, but justifies, who trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. And then he goes on to give an example of David, right? who was justified apart from works. And he quotes one of the Psalms there, Blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. And as many evangelical scholars point out, uh, well, look, if you look at David in the Old Testament, um, when you say, when Paul says he was justified apart from works, uh, circumcision was not David's problem, right? Right. <laughs> it wasn't that he failed to get circumcised and failed to, you know, to, uh, you know, keep the dietary laws. David's problem was that he committed adultery and he committed murder and he broke the Decalogue, right? And yet God justified him. He forgave him of his iniquities because of his faith and because of his repentance. So there's been an interesting back and forth out here about exactly how to define uh, the role of works in Paul and especially the definition of role of works of the law. And so what John and Michael and I have done in this book is kind of a, a Catholic uh, classic both and, right? Yeah. Uh, to look at the aspects of both positions and say, yes, the new perspective is right. There are certain passages like Galatians where when Paul talks about works of the law, He's clearly referring primarily to circumcision and mm-hmm. other, you know, mm-hmm. dietary laws of Judaism. But there are other passages like Romans 4 where it's, uh, you know, circumcision is in play, but it's not exclusively those works. It also includes any work of the old law, including obedience to the Decalogue, right? Because it's true, if you think about it, a person does not get into either the Old Covenant or the New Covenant by obedience to... The, the Ten Commandments or any of the works of the Old Testament, it's always through grace. Yeah. So that's what we're trying to show in this book, that actually a good Catholic reading of Paul emphasizes actually what the Council of Trent itself said. If you look at the Council of Trent, a lot of Catholics don't know this, and i got to confess, Al, when I was first studying this, I didn't realize this either. But if you look at the Council of Trent, it actually says, nothing that precedes justification, neither faith nor works, 
would merit the initial yeah. grace yeah. of justification. Yeah. Because if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. And that's Trent. Guess, who, guess who's quoting there? St. Paul. That's right. So we're trying That's to right. show a Catholic both and approach to Paul that would take these different uh, aspects of many, uh, much of the debate going on in non-Catholic circles and, and give a, a Catholic perspective on them. What kind of Jew was Paul is the question you ask in your first chapter here. Oh, yeah. This is a great question. <laughs> so, how, how, would he, how, how would he have... Uh, how would he have characterized himself if he were asked that question? So, Paul, what kind Man, of Jew a, are you? Yeah, this is, boy, this is another one of those hot debates right now. Yeah. After works of the law, this might be the next biggest debate. Because, you know, there's some passages where Paul will talk as if he's almost uh, a former Jew, right? right? So, for example, in Galatians 1, he'll say, in my former life in Judaism, or in Philippians 3, he'll talk about how, you know, he considers his past to be rubbish in comparison to what he's, you know, now that he's been found in Christ. And then at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul actually says he's no longer under the law, right? Mm -hmm. So what Jew would say such a thing? Right. So on one hand, Paul will have these passages where he almost sounds like he's describing himself as a convert from Judaism to Christianity. Of course, he doesn't use those terms, right? Because the term Christianity hasn't been invented yet. Right. But on the other hand, there are other passages where Paul talks about himself as a Jew, as an Israelite. So in Romans 9, he'll talk about his, you know, his fellow Israelites in the faith. In Philippians 3, he'll call himself a Hebrew of Hebrews, right? As <laughs> right. to the law, blameless. He's very proud of his Jewish identity. Mm -hmm. and so you can imagine what this has led to is some scholars talk about Paul as if he's no longer a Jew, a kind of former Jew, a convert to Christianity. Others will say, no, no, no. Paul is a Torah observant Jew. He's completely and thoroughly Jewish, and all he's trying to do is bring Judaism to the Gentiles, bring the truth of monotheism to the Gentiles. Uh, this view of Paul as a law observant Jew is actually really uh, gaining a lot of momentum in recent years. Out, some people call it the radical new perspective. Huh. <laughs> so, in other words, the new perspective goes back to the seventies, but now we got a new new perspective, which is a more radical view of Paul's Jewishness. And so what, what um, John and Michael and I try to do in the, our book is say that well, maybe we should look at how Paul describes himself. Mm -hmm. And if you look at 2 Corinthians 3, he calls himself a new covenant Jew. Okay. Well, hold it there if you would, Brent. We'll be back and continue. My guest, Dr. Brent Petrie, the book, Paul, A New Covenant Jew, Rethinking Pauline Theology. This is a <clears throat> fascinating look at uh, St. Paul, who is really by all Christian accounts, uh, next to Jesus, the most important single figure in our understanding. Hi, I'm Dr. Greg Popchak. And I'm Lisa Popchak. Want a better family life this Lent? Join the Catholic Home 40 Days for Families Challenge. Lent calls us to do more to share God's love with others. The best place to start doing that is in our families. Go to CatholicHOM.com to download the premium version of the Catholic Home app. Use the promo code AVE for 50% off the first month. Discover how God wants to transform your family life this Lent with the 40 Days for Families Challenge at CatholicHOM.com. Crested in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization, Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you to one of 900 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 75% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. 
More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org. The following is a medical moment. Hi, I'm Bobby Schindler, brother of Terry Schiavo. In 2005, my sister experienced a brain injury, leaving her unable to speak for herself and make her own decisions regarding medical care. Since she had not established a health care agent by creating a health care durable power of attorney, the courts decided to leave the medical decisions to Michael, Terry's husband. Because of this, Michael was able to remove Terry's food and water, dehydrating and starving her to death by court order. There are many reasons why someone may need a feeding tube, such as an illness or injury, that leaves a patient with difficulty swallowing. Usually, feeding tubes are short-term solutions until the patient can swallow on their own. St. Pope John Paul II clarified that food and water by tube is basic care owed to patients and not a medical act. We never know when you or a loved one may be faced with an injury. I urge you to have a conversation with your family and to identify a health care agent to make sure your life wishes are known and to take the step of finalizing a health care power of attorney. It could very well save your lives. This medical moment brought to you by MyLifeAngels.com. In the world of religion, what constitutes a promise? What constitutes a vow? How do they differ? The Catholic Catechism states that the Christian is called to make promises in a number of different ways, such as in baptism, confirmation, matrimony, and holy orders. A Christian may also make promises that are uniquely his own, such as promising to say certain prayers, give alms, or make a pilgrimage. Remaining faithful to a promise we make to God demonstrates the respect due Him and His divine love. A vow is a deliberate and free act of devotion in which a Christian dedicates himself to God or promises God some good work. The Church recognizes as especially exemplary those who embrace the evangelical counsels of poverty, chastity, and obedience. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Maybe you've been hearing a lot about the need to make a spiritual communion while participating from home in a live-streamed or broadcast Mass. By asking for spiritual communion, we are acknowledging that the Holy Mass is the perfect, best way to worship God. The priest intercedes perfectly for us with God the Father because he acts in persona Christi. This is the time to see that through the priest's representation of Christ's sacrifice on Calvary, we are never separated from our Lord. Jesus, I embrace you and unite myself wholly to you. Ave Maria Mutual Funds does not invest in companies engaged in abortion, pornography, embryonic stem cell research, and those making corporate contributions to Planned Parenthood. Ave Maria Mutual Funds has a zero-tolerance policy that helps ensure investments align with moral beliefs. Ave Maria Mutual Funds may be contacted at 1-866-AVE-MARIA or online at AveMariaFunds.com. A proud sponsor of Ave Maria Radio. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is Dr. Brent Petrie. We're taking a look at St. Paul. Uh, He and Michael Barber and John Kincaid have just published uh, a new volume called Paul, a New Covenant Jew, Rethinking Pauline Theology. And we're going over the various um, ways that Paul uh, may have understood himself. And I guess a lot of people ask the question, and it's a natural one, did Paul think that uh, 
the Jewish people had a history or a future uh, apart from Christ? Mm, yeah, that's a great way to ask the question, Al. Uh, and there, there, there is, in fact, uh, a way of reading Paul. There's a rising group of scholars, uh, sometimes called the Radical New Perspective on Paul, and, that are arguing today. This is really interesting, Al. They're actually arguing that not only did Paul see himself uh, uh, first and foremost as a Jew, and not only was Paul a law-observant Jew, but they're actually arguing that Paul, the law-observant Jew, really believed that there were two ways of salvation, mm. that the Torah of Moses had been given by God to the Jews for their salvation, and that the gospel had been given by God to the Gentiles for their salvation. Um, you, I don't know if you've seen this book. It came out a few years back. Uh, it was it was entitled kind of provocatively, Was Paul a Christian? Have you heard of that one? I've heard of it, but I haven't read it. Oh, I'm sorry. It's Paul was not a Christian. I'm sorry. Yeah. It's by Pamela Eisenbaum. Mm -hmm. And in that book, she's a Jewish scholar, Jewish New Testament scholar. And in that book, Paul was not a Christian. You know, she points out the two things. One of them is very true. She says Paul never calls himself a Christian. Right. That's true. The word Christianos does not occur in any of Paul's letters, right? And he does call himself a Jew. But what then she also goes on to argue that is that for Paul, Jesus only dies for the Gentiles. Mm. He doesn't die for the Jews. Because the Torah is the way the Jews are saved, and Christ is the way the Gentiles are saved. That's Eisenbaum's argument. So what she's wrestling with there is this, you know, complex relationship between Paul and the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And so what we try to show in the book is that view of Paul, that radical new perspective, really doesn't do justice to Paul's own self-description. Because although he does call himself a Jew and an Israelite and a Hebrew and all those things, he also, in Second Corinthians 3, refers to himself, very importantly, as a minister of the New Covenant. Right. This is really crucial. So that's the subtitle of our book. Uh, it... it by describing Paul as a New Covenant Jew, what we effectively do is are able to uh, explain both the continuity between Paul and Judaism, that's the emphasis on the covenant there, right? right? But also the discontinuity, that God really has inaugurated something new uh, in Jesus Christ, and that Paul's apostolic activity isn't just to Gentiles. To the contrary, it's to everyone, as Paul himself says in 1 Corinthians 9, right? I became as all things to all men, so that I might by all means save some, yeah. right? So yeah. when he's with the Jews, he says, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. And when I was with those who were not under the law, i.e. the pagans, I became as one outside the law, right? So that I might win everyone. So our book is kind of a response to that. What we're trying to show is, if you think of Paul as a new covenant Jew, you can begin to understand why he both affirms the goodness of the law, affirms the goodness of the Torah, but also says that something new has happened in Christ, and that Paul is going to be the one who brings that the good news of salvation through the new covenant to not just Jews, but to Gentiles, to the Jew first, and then to the Greek. Does she have to get, does she have to get rid of the pastoral epistles in order to maintain that position? Yeah, no, absolutely. In fact, uh, most of, much of the scholarship going on today, and especially a lot of the scholarship we deal with in our book, uh, takes the seven undisputed yeah. letters of Paul right, right. as the, the base text, right? So most of them will not 
address or will regard the, the pastoral epistles as pseudepigraphical. In other words, as written in Paul's name, but as not actually having been authored by him. Yeah, so so the, because we're entering into that debate, we focus in this book just on those seven sure, sure. letters as well. But yeah. I mean, she, wouldn't she have difficulty with uh, not only with the pastoral epistles, but also with Colossians and Ephesians, given the oh, cosmic absolutely. the cosmic role that Jesus plays? Absolutely, yeah. No, there's no doubt that though, that it's much more difficult to bring those passages, those uh, the pastoral epistles and uh, the other disputed Pauline letters into that view. But as we're trying to show in this book, even the letters that are undisputed, like Second Corinthians, right, there's right. just no and Romans. There's no way to reconcile them with the view that Paul sees two paths to salvation: one for Jews and one for Gentiles. For Paul, this is how we would put it: everyone for Paul is saved. Through the new covenant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's the essence of it. Yeah, and uh, that's why he calls himself a minister of the new covenant. He's not a minister of the Mosaic covenant. Think about it. Is Paul a Levite or a priest working in the temple? Right. You know, renewing the Mosaic covenant through the sacrifices? No, that's not what he's doing. He's going out to synagogues and also to Gentiles and bringing people to faith and baptism into Jesus Christ. And his his expectation is that that this new covenant is uh, consequential for all of humanity, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah um, actually, if you go back and you look, um, well, first at Romans chapter 1, which is kind of Paul's main theological treatise, at the very beginning he talks about the gospel, right? Yep. And he says um, in chapter 1, verse 17, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who yeah, has faith right. to the Jew first and also the Greek. So right. it's a universal message of salvation for both Jews and Greeks. At the same time, it is it is complicated. It is difficult to try to explain why Paul will sometimes speak about the law so positively, right. and other times he seems to speak about it negatively, right? How he refers to himself as a Jew, and yet at the same time as the minister of the New Covenant. So that's what we're really wrestling with in this book, you know. What is the gospel of Paul, um, and how does it af- how does it affect the way he carries out his ministry, but also what, what, what he believes and what the New Testament teaches about salvation? I mean, as I'm sure you know, there, uh, in our day and time, has become very popular to embrace a kind of universalism. I know. It says that, you know, there are all these different paths to God, and they're really all kind of the same. And you can see a little bit of that in the work of scholars like Eisenbaum. She actually describes her position as similar to universalism. Paul's got one path to God for the Jews and another path for the Gentiles. And we think that there are real problems with that a radical new perspective in terms of making sense of Paul's own statements yeah. about salvation in Christ, like salvation as being in, in Christ. Yeah, yeah. Dr. Michael McClyman has written oh, this sure. two-volume work uh, called The Devil's Redemption, which is a history yep. of uh, universalism, and uh, Ralph's written, uh, a, 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 from a, a Catholic perspective, has written one too. Michael's not a Catholic. Yeah. But um, this this problem of universalism is... Uh, is I. I would have thought this thing would have been killed off by now, but it seems to have new life recently. Well, I think in, in, well, in Pauline studies in particular, it definitely fits with the spirit of the times, right? Yeah. But there's also passages such as Romans 11, yeah. 6, right? All Israel will be saved right. that scholars like Eisenbaum are going to point to. And what they'll say is, look, when Paul says all Israel will be saved, 
he means all Israel will be saved. He doesn't mean just those Jews who uh, believe in Jesus, like Paul himself or Peter or the apostles, but all Israelites. And so, um, and, and, and they'll go on to say, well, he's, and he means that they will be saved through the old covenant because the gifts and the call of God are irrevocable, right, as right. Paul says in Romans 11. But uh, as we try to show in the book, you can only interpret those verses in that way if you take them out of context, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it is true, Paul says, all Israel will be saved, but then he goes on to quote, Jeremiah 31, when God talks right. about making a covenant in right. which he will take away their sins. The new covenant, and in Jeremiah yeah. 31, yeah, it's the new covenant. That's exactly right. right. Paul's deliberately quoting their prophecy of the new covenant. So it's not just any covenant through which all Israel will be saved. It's through the new covenant itself. Yeah. Uh, what, um, what did St. Paul think of what Jesus accomplished in uh, what we call the atonement. Oh, wow. This is a really important question. Um, This is another classic example of how Paul is thoroughly Jewish and yet also saying something really new Mm -hmm. about what has happened in Christ. So if you go back and you look at Romans chapter 3, for example, this is kind of the classic text on the atonement and Paul's um, letters, where he says, since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, they are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as an expiation, yeah. or the New, New Revised Standard Version translates that as an atonement, mm-hmm. sacrifice mm-hmm. of atonement by his blood to be received by faith. And what's interesting is, that word there that's translated sacrifice of atonement, hilasterion, is actually goes back to the Greek version of the Jewish scriptures and the description of the Day of Atonement, hmm. the mercy seat, um, that if you recall in the book of Leviticus, once a year, the high priest would enter into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, he would offer a sacrifice, and then he would sprinkle the blood of that sacrifice seven times on the hilasterion, the same word that Paul uses there. Sometimes it's translated as the mercy seat, right? It's the covering of the Ark of the Covenant. It's this, the most sacred place in the temple where the atonement for all of the sins of the high priest and all the priests and all the people for the entire year would be atoned for through the blood of that sacrifice in the temple that was offered annually every fall. Now, notice what Paul does. He takes something very Jewish, right, the language of the mercy seat, the language of the atonement, the language of the sacrifice, but he says that now that has been accomplished through the death of Jesus Christ, right? That through his act of atonement, justification now takes place by his grace as a gift for all those who have faith. So this is a perfect example of how both Paul is both continuous with Judaism, right? He's thinking in Jewish categories. He's using the language of Jewish scripture. He's using the language of the Jewish day of atonement, Yom Kippur. But he's applying it to something radically new and different. He's not talking about the high priest in the earthly temple with the blood of a bull or a goat. He's talking about the blood of this layman from Galilee, right, Nazareth of all places, who was executed as a criminal outside the city of Jerusalem. How do you how do you turn that cross into a cultic act, into a into a temple liturgy? Well, it's only if Jesus Himself is a sacrificial yes. offering, if yeah. He's the sacrificial lamb, if His blood is a sacrificial act of atonement. Um, 
for for a long time, uh, I don't know if it's still being done in New Testament studies, but for a long time when I was a new Christian, there were those mm-hmm. scholars claiming that... Uh, can you stay in another segment, Grant? Oh, yeah, sure. Good, sure. good. All right, hang on. We'll come back. We're going to talk about whether the theology of Paul was also the theology of Jesus. Uh, there have been those scholars that tried to drive a wedge between Jesus and Paul, as though Paul is the real inventor of Christianity. We'll come back on the other side of the break and put, uh, bring this up with Dr. Brant Petrie. Paul, a new covenant Jew, rethinking Pauline theology. Today's programming on 990 WDEO is brought to you in part by a gift from our day sponsors, Carolyn and Larry, who would like to honor Carolyn's mother, Helen Berger, on her 95th birthday today. Mother of nine, grandmother of 24, and great-grandmother of 26, Helen is a shining example of God's love in our family. May God bless her with good health and many more birthdays to come. Happy birthday, Helen, from all of us here at Ave Maria Radio. Come celebrate the Feast of St. Joseph during the 150th anniversary of Detroit's St. Joseph Shrine. On Sunday, March 19th, a conference with Cardinal Burke on St. Joseph will be held at St. John's Resort in Plymouth. And on Monday, March 20th, there will be a day of prayer at the Shrine, including a pontifical mass, outdoor procession, dinner, and more. For the full schedule and to buy conference and dinner tickets, visit stjosephshrined.org. That's stjosephshrined.org. Stocks and bonds are losing, and interest rates are on the rise. Protect your savings with a fixed guaranteed rate of 5% with a multi-year guaranteed annuity from an A-rated insurance company. Regular savings as well as retirement funds are eligible for this special rate of 5%. For more info, contact Reno Frazita at 586-262-6400. That's 586-262-6400. Current rates subject to change and penalty for early withdrawal. Ave Maria Radio invites you to feast on the joy of fasting this Lenten season and all year long. Fast from complaining. Feast on appreciation. Fast from negatives. Feast on affirmatives. Fast from unrelenting pleasures. Feast on unceasing prayer. Fasting is a part of true Christian life. It liberates us from this world as we grow closer to Christ. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popcha. St. John Paul's Theology of the Body teaches us that having healthy relationships means cooperating with God's design of our bodies. Research tells us that kids' brains can't learn and integrate new behaviors when they're stressed, upset, distracted, or scared. Have you ever felt like everything you tell your kids goes in one ear and out the other? Well, are you telling them those things when they're stressed, upset, distracted, or scared? That might be your answer. Discipleship Discipline, an approach inspired by St. John Bosco, gives parents strategies to help their kids calm down first so they can learn what their parents are trying to teach them. Discipleship Discipline is an important part of the liturgy of domestic church life. To discover more ways your family can celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life, check out the newest editions of Parenting with Grace and visit CatholicCounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. CMF Curo is a Catholic health care ministry providing families nationwide with a better solution centered around whole health, spirit, mind, and body. Our members share their medical burdens within a faith-filled community. At CMF Curo, 
our members have access to a spiritual director, concierge services, and other health and spiritual resources. Find out if CMF Curo is a better solution for your family. Visit MyCatholicHealthCare.com. That's MyCatholicHealthCare.com. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Brent Petrie, who with um, Michael Barber and John Kincaid have they've co-authored, Paul, a New Covenant Jew, Rethinking Pauline Theology. Uh, one of the first uh, challenges I had when I began as a Christian while I was still in college was uh, I came across people claiming that the theology, that Paul's the really real inventor of Christianity, mm-hmm. and somehow um, he is he's not an adequate interpreter of Jesus' life. Uh, he didn't spend time with Jesus, and so he basically is the inventor of Christianity. Uh, what do you make of those who claim, make such a claim? Yeah, um, well, first of all, I would say we that claim has died down somewhat okay. uh, in recent years. Uh, so it wasn't one of the key topics we addressed in yeah. this book okay. in particular. Uh, although I do think there, there are some people who make the claim. Essentially what they tend to mean when they say that, Al, is that whereas Jesus of Nazareth restricted his mission to Jews, right, uh, like he says in Matthew, Matthew yep. the 12 apostles, you know, yeah, go nowhere among the Gentiles, but only to the lost tribes of Israel. Mm-hmm. Paul makes a very clear beeline, right, to the right. nations of the world, to the right. pagan peoples. And they see that as an act of discontinuity or disjuncture, like kind of a rupture with the mission of Jesus. Um, so we didn't get into that in this book, although actually I have written on it elsewhere in my dissertation, I actually dealt with this, because what I show in there is that if you look at the Hebrew prophets over and over again, when the prophets describe what Jesus himself set out to do, namely regather the 12 tribes of Israel, yep. right? That's the prophets say over and over again, all 10 tribes will be brought back from the Assyrian exile, they'll be gathered together, and the 12 tribes will be reconstituted, and that's when the kingdom of God will come. If you look at the prophets, they always will say, or or at least almost always, they'll frequently say that when when the lost tribes of Israel and the 12 tribes are gathered together, like Jesus is doing with the apostles, that the Gentiles will come with them. Mm -hmm. We do have a brief section earlier in the book where we actually point out that when St. Paul talks about all Israel being saved, you can actually make a case that he's talking about all 12 tribes. And in Jewish thought, this is really interesting, um, there was a belief that when the Assyrian exile took place eight centuries before Christ, those ten lost northern tribes had actually been well, actually, this isn't just a belief. We know it's a fact. They were intermingled among the pagan peoples when the Assyrians brought them into exile. Mm -hmm. And so their identity was, in a sense, absorbed into the pagan nations of the world. So there was this expectation, and we think you can make the case that this is what Paul is actually talking about in Romans 9 through 11, that in order to get all Israel back, in order to gather all 12 tribes, including the lost tribes, guess what you have to do? Yeah. 
you have to bring the nations back right. as well. Right. Because in doing so, you get the descendants of those northern tribes that nobody ever thinks about. You know, Naphtali and uh, Asher and, and, and Dan and all the other tribes besides Judah and Benjamin. So there is an eschatological continuity. Jesus begins the ingathering of the 12 tribes in the land, but then Paul takes it and he goes out to the nations. But you'll notice, what does he always do? He always goes to the synagogue first in the book of Acts. Yeah. Right? It's yeah. to the Jew first and then to the Greek. So there's actually more continuity between Paul's mission and Jesus' mission than people tend to realize. But it's just because they don't read the prophets as closely, perhaps. Which <laughs> 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 is understandable. The prophets, the prophets are hard. I get it. I get it. But it's important <laughs> to see that the prophets talk about the ingathering of Israel. Right. And right. the Gentiles, not uh, Israel. What about the uh, emphasis on the kingdom in Jesus' uh, words, whereas the concept or the, the word kingdom is not that big a, doesn't play that big a place in Paul's writings? Yeah, I think that one reason that's the case is you need to keep in mind whenever you're looking at Paul, who's the audience yes. of the bulk yes. of his letters, right? That's right. So although his missionary activity is directed to Jew first and then to Greek, then to the Greek, he does describe himself as the apostle to the nations, That's and the right. churches that he founds, like the churches in Corinth, he's usually writing to Gentiles, right? Mm-hmm. Who are Remember, so Jesus is speaking to Jews, and they're going to understand, he talks about the kingdom of God, he's yeah. alluding to the book of Daniel, and to the prophecies of the kingdom that Jews were very familiar with. Mm-hmm. Whereas with the Gentiles, Paul will sometimes not use language that presupposes as much knowledge of the Jewish scripture. So he won't talk about the Son of Man as much, or the Kingdom of God as much, although he does talk about the Kingdom, it's not like it's not in the letter. Right. Uh, precisely because he's writing to a Gentile audience, it's going to have a different uh, vocabulary, so to speak. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah it certainly does. Uh, again, I want to get to this idea of the inbreaking of the kingdom or what what exactly is our relationship to the age to come um yeah and yeah this is a great question yeah now does does he uh is it clear that saint paul recognizes that we have in the eucharist an inbreaking of the kingdom Absolutely, although I think the, the language that Paul uses here, if you go back and look at the, um, if you go back and look at the, 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 the letter to the Corinthians, yeah. where Paul really talks about the Eucharist, he, he tends to actually describe it, and Michael Barber does a great job with this in his chapter in the book, as a kind of participation right. in the new creation. Yeah, right? okay. This is very, very important. There's a lot of debate. You know, does Paul look at the Lord's Supper as merely symbolic? Or does he think that the bread and the wine actually become the body and blood of Christ? Is he more realistic in his approach to what he's describing in, in his accounts of the Eucharist and the Lord's Supper? And as we show in the book, if you look at Paul's teaching on the Eucharist in light of Jewish eschatology and in light of Paul's statements about what Christ has done, you'll see that Paul sees our participation in the Eucharist as a participation in the beginning of the new creation. See, in Judaism, there was this expectation that when the Messiah finally came, or when the age, you know, the age of salvation was inaugurated, mm-hmm. that this world would pass away, and a new age, or a new world, a new creation would take place. So it was like two distinct spheres of reality, the old creation and the new creation. But for Paul, what happens is, in Christ, those two spheres of reality overlap. 
so that those of us who have been baptized, in a sense, we have one foot in the old creation and another foot in the new creation. Mm-hmm. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 11, not only does Jesus, Paul quote Jesus saying, you know, this is my body, which is given for you, and this is my blood, but he also speaks uh, in 1 Corinthians 10 with these words. He says, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? And the bread which we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And those, the, the word there for participation is koinonia. It can mean fellowship, but it's a real participation in the blood and body of Christ, which has been, of course, not just crucified for Paul, but also resurrected, right? right? Christ is the beginning of this new creation. And if you have any doubt that he's talking about that realistically, if you just keep going, guess what he compares the Eucharist to? The sacrifices that were eaten by the Israelites in the temple yep. and the sacrifices that pagans eat in their temples that they offered to demons. Hmm. And so he says at the end of that verse, in, in chapter 10, verse 21, you can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. And so notice what Paul thinks of. He thinks of the Eucharist there as a true participation, either in the invisible spirituality of the demonic or in the in the reality of Christ's crucified and resurrected body and blood. Mm-hmm. And so as we show in the book, when he calls it the, the Lord's table, this is really cool, Al, He's actually alluding to Malachi chapter 1, where Malachi describes the Lord's table as the sacrificial altar in the temple. Huh. All right? Huh. So when Paul talks, if he calls the Lord's supper something <laughs> happening on the Lord's table, yeah. guess what? He thinks the Eucharist is a sacrifice. Wow. Wow. So and, there, and, and insofar as that, it's a real participation in the cross and resurrection of Jesus. Well, that's amazing. The continuity, of, in a sense, is some temple theology thrown in here. Um, that's ex- that's yeah. exactly right. That's yeah. exactly right. That's, yeah. a, that's amazing. Which, which makes sense, because remember, what has he told the Corinthians? You know, you are God's temple. Yeah. Right? Yep. Yeah. Let me go to... Spirit, now dwelling in them. You know, as an evangelical for so many years, um, the, the, as I presented the gospel to people, it was a matter of uh, placing your faith in Christ so that your sins would be sure. forgiven. And I don't recall a single time uh, during those years that I ever talked about uh, receiving Christ and thereby becoming a child of God. I, I guess I assumed that would be the case, but it wasn't my, what sure. I played. Uh, John, you know, in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, he talks about those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children sure. born not sure. of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor of a husband's will, mm-hmm. but born of God. Um, so this idea of divine sonship is much more common in the Catholic understanding of the gospel than I recall it anyways as an evangelical. Uh, Do you see that as a major difference? I do see it as a major difference in emphasis for sure. So if you look, for example, this goes all the way back to the Council of Trent. In the Catholic tradition, when the Council of Trent issued the decree on justification, it actually define justification as divine sonship, yeah, right? Right. We, uh, and, it, and it rooted that definition in the letters of Paul. And it, we have a whole chapter just on justification in Paul. It's really important. And we home in in particular on uh, Romans 8, 
where Paul is talking about, you know, he says, uh, among those who he predestined, he also called, and among those who called, he also justified, mm-hmm. and those whom he justified, he also glorified. And if you back up just one verse, what does he mean when he says that those whom he predestined, he justified? Well, in Romans 8, verse 29, he says, those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his yes, son. that's right. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Ah, so look, for Paul, see, justification isn't just a declaration of forgiveness. Right. Although it is that, which yes. is wonderful and great. But it's also being conformed to the image of God's Son. That means that for Paul, uh, righteousness in Christ isn't, it isn't counterfactual, right? It's not a fiction. Right. It's not just imputed to us, but it brings about a real change. We really are conformed to the image of Christ so that we can actually say we are sons and daughters of God in the Son, right? Yes. It really changes us and makes us children of God. That's why Paul can say in Galatians, right, we cry out through the Spirit that's been given to us, Abba, Father. Yes. Right? But yes. this image of being conformed in Romans 8 is really cr- critical because the Catholic view of justification is that it isn't just you know forensic or juridical or legal. It's transformative. A person's heart is really changed through the grace of the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul's so he's so important. He's so fixed or emphatic about uh, Jeremiah 31 because the New Covenant. What's new about the New Covenant? Well, God says, "I will write the law where yeah, in heart. their heart." Right. right? So right. it's not just an extrinsic declaration. God actually changes us from within, at least according to Paul. Yeah. Yeah, and this this shows up again in in First Corinthians chapter six, isn't it? Where he, where he seems to have justification, sanctification uh, collapsed yep. into one another. That's right. It's almost like three ways of talking about the same thing. In First yeah. Corinthians six eleven, he says, "You were washed, right? You right. were sanctified. You were justified, yep. right?" Yep. Um, and that's that's long been a debate when he says justify. There. What does that exactly mean? Does it mean to declare someone righteous or innocent, like in a court verdict? Or does it mean to actually make that person righteous through grace? And Catholics have always said, well, it's both. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's right. both and. It's not an either or uh, there. there. There really is a, a declaration that God makes. But, that, but see, when God declares something, Al, it's efficacious. When right. he says, let there That's be right. light, there's light. There's light. It's and a performative says, utterance. You're right? righteous. No. That's exactly. That's exactly right. That's exactly what the terminology scholars use today. A performative utterance. It's yeah. a real change that's affected by His Word. Well, Brent, thanks for joining me once again. Always great talking with you, and uh, I'm really yeah, delighted to have this book. So, we'll talk again, Lord willing. I hope so. Thanks so much for having me, Doctor Brent Petrie, Paul, a New Covenant Jew, rethinking Pauline theology. Again, tremendous uh, contribution to our understanding of St. Paul. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. Food for the Journey, Sister Ann Shield. You know, we would avoid a lot of difficult arguments just 
spouting off at the mouth, as we sometimes say. Just ask the Lord, give me the words to say. Maybe I'm rightfully angry, but if I just shout and yell and scream, what good is that going to be? Brothers and sisters, God can give us much more control over our anger, over our fear, over our language. And so whenever you're in a tight spot, just stop for a moment and say, Lord, what would you have me do here? God is good. I don't mean he's going to say words that will come down from heaven. But if you pause just for a moment, you'll get hold of yourself and you may well get a thought that you didn't have before. And sometimes it's just quiet, but it's enough to bring down the steam. And then you think what is really right to say here. You might be justifiably angry. How do we respect the other person while we're correcting them? Please, brothers and sisters, let us open our hearts to God in those moments. Sister Ann Shields gives you food for the journey, weekday mornings at 645 and again at 1130 on 990 Ave Maria Radio. Thanks so much. Good being with you. And let me remind you that uh, the books we discuss on this program are all available at AveMariaRadio.net. That's AveMariaRadio.net. We have the online bookstore there. We also have the guest archives. So they're easy to find. Upper right-hand corner of the homepage. See my face there. Tap it. That'll take you to the uh, podcast, the guest archives, so you'll be able to Look over past programs. Also be able to pick up information related to today's programs. Uh, you know, at the very beginning of this, we talked about the futility of the January 6th hearings. Uh, then we talked about how messiness may be the secret to a holy family with Michael Hernan. And then we looked at the uh, activity of the Communist Chinese Party in registering uh, Christians and other uh, religious people. And then, of course... We look at St. Paul this hour. So uh, Brent's book is available there in the online bookstore. Thanks. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A Radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net. You're listening to Ave Maria Radio. Ave Maria Radio. The doctor is in on Ave Maria Radio. This is Dr. Ray Gurendi. The question, is it normal, is not always a good question. The better question, is it right? Tune in to The Doctor is in. We'll help you sort that one out. We'll be doing the right thing. Dr. Ray Gurendi, weekdays at 1 on Ave Maria Radio. Light of the East. Weekends on Ave Maria Radio. 
I am Father Thomas Loya. This week on Ave Maria, there is a humanitarian disaster on the southern border of the United States of America. For a simple solution, look no further than the liturgy of the Eastern Catholic Churches. Saturday evenings at 8.30 and Sunday mornings at 9 on 990 WDEO, Ave Maria Radio. This is Life News Radio. I'm Jim Anderson. One New York adoption agency serves those who want to place their child in a traditional father and mother home. New York state law tried to ban such agencies from failing to serve adoptive same-sex couples or unmarried cohabitating couples. Two federal court rulings blocked that part of the law, and a settlement now compels the state to pay a quarter million in damages to New Hope Family Services of Syracuse. 40 Days for Life is noting another permanent closing of an abortion business, Bogota's Orientame Clinic. The name literally means the Guide Me Clinic is the ninth abortion business to close in Latin America. On news that the Department of Defense, in violation of federal law, would now facilitate abortions, Senator Tommy